Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Hey, thank you also for your grace here tonight as we uh, look to... uh, affirm a potential elder and present him to you. And we don't do that very often and we needed to record it tonight to play on Sunday morning. Uh, we are a multi-site church, so we do have another campus over at Fapalm in Gettysburg. So appreciate your grace in that regard. Um, I'd like to do one more thing that's a little different. Would you just like humor me a little bit? Do you mind standing? I'm gonna read the passage we're gonna teach out of Matthew chapter two. We don't do this very often. Some of you come from church traditions where you always stand in honor of God's word. Um, and so I'd just like to read it. It's Matthew two, we're gonna read verses one through 11. It says this, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the Days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them uh, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi to determine from what exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report that to me, for I too want to come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasuries, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God, thank you for your word. I pray as we um, discuss here tonight the concept of Advent, that you would be pleased as we deal with hopeful expectation of the birth of our King, Emmanuel, God with us, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. Uh, I don't know what your uh, family was like um, when you were maybe a kid, if there was any like special Christmas traditions. I've talked about this frequently through the years being here at the well. One of the negatives, by the way, of being around for 20 years is you tell the same story over and over and over, because that's what happened. And my grandmother had this nativity scene that was like the thing. You weren't allowed to touch it, you weren't even allowed to look at it. Uh, I make the joke often, if we even glanced at it, grandpa was getting a switch off the tree. I mean, it was like sacred. The irony is, here I am now, a grown adult. I've got my own two kids that are grown as well, pretty much. And uh, I've got this nativity scene that is off the charts. It's not the same one, but I had a, a cabinet company here in town come to my house, build out this beautiful cabinetry with LED lights on the thing. It's all remote control. Like it is ready for this nativity. So I, I laugh about that. But um, the thing is, when, when, you, when you look at the nativity scene, I'm always encouraged by the scandal of the nativity scene, which sounds weird, but, but stay with me just for a second. I mean, if you really think about the nativity scene and, and the birth narrative of Jesus, much of which we just read, you've got a pregnant teenage girl, you've got a reluctant betrothed husband who in his mind wanted to send her away until the angel showed up. Uh, you've got um, uh, lowly shepherds that are first on the scene, 
So you've got not credible witnesses at all to this amazing thing. Um, they're considered the least of these. You've got um, him being born, not, not in a place of royalty, but, but in a manger, uh, most likely with the animals. And then you've got the presence of these magi. The, these magi, some of your Bibles translate it, uh, wise men that show up from the east. And uh, it's just kind of a, it's a strange scene. If you're the creator of the universe and, and you really wanted to flex, it's probably something else you could have done than this. And yet you realize God, by his grace, is really not trying to flex. He's trying to relate to a broken humanity. And that's why I appreciate sort of the relatability or the scandal of the nativity. But typically your nativity, if it's anything like mine, you know, you've got baby Jesus and you've got Mary and Joseph and, and uh, maybe, maybe some shepherds, maybe some animals. And then these three characters. And I want to talk a little bit about these three characters and in some ways uh, acknowledge I think we have a few problems biblically with our nativity scene. I don't want to blow your mind here. So if you're like, if your Christmas season is set on the, the nativity, you, you might be disappointed tonight. But I do think we, we have a few problems because we've sung some songs that I'm, I'm pretty convinced are not biblical. Like you remember the song, We Three Kings? It says this, so I'm not gonna sing it. Well, unless you sing it with me, so we can, we can negotiate that. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts, we travel to far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. I mean, how many of you have sung that song, We Three Kings? And, and yet, when we read the text, I think you're gonna be a little frustrated because I don't think they're kings. The Bible never says they're kings. Read Matthew 2 again and, and, ask, and answer the question, what are they referred to? They're referred to as wise men or magis. Um, but we've just said they're kings. Um, now, there, there's some you know, church folklore, for the sake of a better term, um, depending on what church tradition you come from. Some traditions actually will name them. So they know who they are, Melchior or Choir or something like that, Casper. You probably know how to say it better than I do. Belthazar or something like that. I don't know. I don't think that's right at all. But they've named them. They've sainted them. Not in the scriptures whatsoever. We're going to talk more about them in a minute. The other thing that's interesting to me is how many magi were there in your nativity scene? Three. Does your Bible ever say there's three? No, it refers to them in plurality. There's this plural magi or wise men. Why do we say there's three? Well, because there's three gifts that were presented, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as if they could only present one gift, one person, one gift. Could another guy have had gold too? I mean, I would imagine, okay? But, but we, we kind of go with that to create sort of the tradition, if you will. The other thing is this. In our nativity scenes, mine at home has it as well. We've got these three figures that are there, and they're present at a manger. But when the Magi showed up, were they, were they in a manger? Well, there's no question, according to Luke's account in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that um, Mary gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in cloth and lays him in a manger. So, yes, Jesus is born in a manger. The question I'm asking uh, is, did the Magi come to a manger? If you look at verse 11 of chapter 2 of uh, Matthew that we just read, where do they show up? They come to a house, not to a manger. And so apparently wherever they come, uh, Jesus is no longer in the manger. He's indoors somewhere. Another thing worth noting, by the way, in Luke's account that speaks of the manger, it says a baby or an infant is placed in a manger. In Matthew 2, verses 9 and 11, he's not referred to as a baby or an infant, but a child. It's a different word. So it's as if when the Magi show up, whenever it is that they show up, and I think there's a couple other indications as to when that was, 
uh, our nativity scene might not be correct. Now, don't worry. Your nativity scene is not inspired by God. So don't sweat it. And if you really want to be true to the text and take those three magi off of your nativity, you could certainly do that. Mine are up. It doesn't really matter. But I think it's worth exploring what really went down in this scene. The question that if they were uh, in a home, then it assumes that this took place sometimes af- sometime after Jesus is born and he's presented to the temple and an offering is given for his birth. In Luke's account in chapter two, verses 21 and following, it says, when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in Mary's womb. And then when the days of purification arose, uh, according to the law of Moses, uh, he was brought up to the temple, presented to the Lord. Uh, as it was written, every firstborn male should be presented to the Lord, and so they did. And they offered a sacrifice according to the law of the Lord, a uh, turtle dove or two young pigeons. Now, this, this is interesting to me. Joseph and Mary's offering is a turtle dove and two young, or they're told to offer a turtle dove or two young pigeons. Now, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, Verse seven, it says this, if you cannot afford a lamb, then you shall bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So when Mary and Joseph bring an offering to the Lord, do they bring an offering that the wealthy could afford or do they bring an offering that the poor could afford? It looks like they bring an offering that would, be, uh, would have been made available by way of concession for the poor. Yet what's the first gift the Magi bring? Gold. So if they were given a gift of gold at the manger, would they not have brought then the actual sacrifice of a lamb that they could clearly afford because they were just given gold? So it looks like the Magi come after uh, Jesus is dedicated at the temple and after the sacrifice is given. But what I think it shows is the faithfulness of our God. Because if you look in Matthew's account, look at verses 13 and following. What happens immediately after the Magi show up and bring the gifts in verse 11 of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What takes place immediately following? Do they go back in verse 12 to Herod? No. So Herod is furious. Herod has no concept, by the way, or no desire to worship Jesus whatsoever. That's the biggest lie uh, contained in this text. He wants to kill them. How do we know he wants to kill Jesus? Look at what he does following that. So the angel appears to Mary and Joseph and says, look, it's not safe for you here. You need to get out of here. In fact, look at verse 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and says, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is gonna search for the child and destroy him. So Joseph gets up, takes the child and his mother while it is still night, and he leaves for Egypt. Takes the child and his mother, leaves for Egypt because of uh, the concern for Herod. In verse 15, they remain there until the death of Herod. Now, there's some debate. Were they there minimum a couple months? Maximum could have been a couple years, depending on how you date the birth of Jesus. Here's the point. When the uh, Magi, these wise men, show up and give a gift of gold, what they really did was gave them the funds and the resources they would need, a visa card, if you will, to head down to Egypt and stay there for what could have been up to two years. So you just see God's grace in this whole situation. Um, but what I'd like to do is really talk about these magi, these, these wise men, because I, I think in some ways they are pretty fascinating and they capture for us what I would call this hopeful expectation. Um, who are these magi or wise men and where did they come from? Well, 
who are they? We'll deal with that first. They are called magi, which, yes, that's where we get the word uh, magician, but, um, or magic, for that matter. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean they were, they, that doesn't assume that they were magicians like pulling rabbits out of hats. That, that's not at all the case. We do know they're, they're not kings. That's clear in the text. And whatever these magi were, by way of magicians, they were most likely um, almost uh, a special class of priest. They seemed to be, according to the scriptures, experts in astrology and astronomy. And uh, the question, though, is where did they come from? I mean, if you look at Matthew's account, what's the only geographic indication we get as to where they come from? They're from the east. Well, what's, what's east of the land of Judea? Well, everything, really. I mean, if you think about it, east is, um, well, could be Parthians, which is modern-day Iran. Now, that's an interesting conjecture, if that's true, because um, the Parthians were enemies of Rome. And just a couple of years previous to this, Herod had um, sort of drove out the Parthians from Judea. And so was that why Herod was exceedingly fearful that here comes these strange men? Who are you? Who are you looking for? Could they have been, in his mind, spies from the enemies he just drove out? Yes, it's, it's possible. Uh, it's also possible that from the east could mean that uh, these men, these wise men, these magi, were from Ur of the Chaldees, which means nothing to most folks until you look at the bottom of Genesis chapter 11, you realize that's where Abraham's from. And so could it be that these are ancient descendants of Abraham coming to see this birth of the, the Savior? It's, it's possible. One of the other thoughts, though, is that they're from ancient Mesopotamia, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, but ancient Babylon. Now, this is kind of interesting for a number of reasons. We don't really know the, the exact location. The, the Bible doesn't give us uh, a clue beyond some basic sort of region stuff. But uh, we do know this, uh, that they were looking for something. And it, it's unlikely, but not impossible, that these magi or wise men could have been Jewish. And the reason it's, it's uh, unlikely but possible uh, is that if they were from Babylon, there was a lot of Jewish people in Babylon. If you remember your Old Testament history, in 586 B.C., the uh, Babylonians come in, destroy the temple of Jerusalem, and take everyone captive. You may know it from stories like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were captives in Babylon. And in fact, um, Psalm 137 says this, speaking of the Jewish people being in captivity in Babylon. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Uh, upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us songs from Zion or Judea. So here's these captives talking about lamenting, we wish we were back home, but we're captive. Now, if that's indeed the case, and it might be, I don't know for sure, but it's fun to play with nonetheless, uh, then that means it's possible that Daniel and his three buddies who were in captivity there may have had influence over these people. Listen to Daniel 2, verse 48. It says this, the king now promoted Daniel, who was, again, one of these Jewish uh, boys taken captive in Babylon and who flourished, and God just lifted him up into positions of authority. So the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, does that mean 
that these wise men were disciples of disciples of disciples of Daniel, no, but could it mean that? Certainly, it could. So it's possibly true. And so what that would suggest, if that were the case, is that these men were very familiar with the scriptures, which would mean that they were looking for something very specific that the text pointed to. Now, in this time, all kinds of um, cultures had some sort of messianic expectation. Not necessarily in keeping with the scriptures, but the Romans were looking, according to the uh, historian Suetonius, for some sort of deliverer. Um, The Jewish people, of course, looking for their Jewish Messiah. Even these magi in the east were looking for something. And they they weren't sure when, and they, they weren't sure how, but they were watching, looking, in hopeful anticipation of something. And then in Matthew chapter two, look at verses one and two again, something happened. And what happened was an event, something so unique, so distinct, that these astrologers or astronomers in the east, wherever that was in the east, saw it and recognized, not only is that interesting, that's it. Because when they show up to Herod, They don't show up asking questions about a phenomenon in the skies. They show up looking for the the birth of the Messiah. If you look at verses one and two, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. They knew exactly what they were coming for. So what was this star? Uh, There's a lot of great scholarship that's been put into this, but it looks like it was some sort of astronomical phenomena, some thing that occurred. This wasn't just like an interesting sunset, and so they were stirred to travel 30 days through the desert to get to Judea. No, they, they saw something that was different than anything they had ever seen. And some have suggested, by the way, that this star that they saw was was less about an actual celestial something and more about a light that they could not explain. In Genesis chapter one, for example, uh, in the creation account, you've got the presence of light and darkness before the sun is even created, which begs the question, well, then what was that light? And some suggest it may have been the very presence of God. And when you read Moses' account uh, in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses goes up onto the uh, mountain, it says that the, um, there was a consuming fire on the mountaintop, the appearance of what the Bible says is the glory of the Lord. So some, some wonder, was this star, some appearance of the presence of God, some glory of God revealed? What is worth noting, by the way, if you look at verse nine very carefully, this wasn't a fixed positional celestial something. Look at verse nine. It says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So that's not a comet. That's not a moon. In our day, that's not a satellite that's going across the sky. This thing led them from the east all the way to Judea, all the way specifically to Bethlehem, and then stopped right over the place where Jesus was born. The reality is, I don't know what it was. I'm not 100% sure what exactly it was, but I do know this, whatever it was, it led them right there to the very place where Jesus was born. 
And I do know that they were looking for something specific because it says in verse two, um, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw the star and we came. Whatever this was, was so distinct and so unique that they were moved to respond. Well, Numbers chapter 24 says this. It says, I see him, but do not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Micah 5.2 speaks of Bethlehem being the place that's little among the clans of Judah, but from them would come a ruler of Israel whose going forth would be from long ago from the days of eternity. So it seems like they were putting these pieces together. And it went on before them. And in verse nine, I want you to notice, by the way, it went on before them and it stood over the place where? Where the child was born. And if you notice in verse 11, and after coming to the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother and they fell on the ground and they worshiped whom? Him. I think that's important. Because the, uh, verse 9, the star came to the house where the child was born, and in 11, they came and they worshiped him. It's worth noting that from a theological perspective, Acts 4.12 puts it this way, there is salvation in no one else, there is no other name in heaven that is given among men by which we can be saved but by the name of Jesus. Meaning, uh, they didn't come to worship Mary, they came to worship him. In the grand scheme of things, he is the redeemer, the savior of the world. That's not to say Mary is not highly favored. The Bible says she is. But it's saying that the savior of the world was this Jesus. Question then, what did these magi or wise men offer? Well, we know it. I mean, we've known it since we were kids. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Unless your kids can't pronounce that, which the, they just say the darndest things. Isn't it the best? But uh, anyway, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, a precious metal that was highly valuable. Some suggest symbolizing his royalty. Frankincense, which was costly and used for royal procession, procession rather. Some say symbolizing his deity. And then myrrh, of course, a perfume, or perfume rather, used for burial, symbolizing his humanity. So looking at this text in, in Matthew 2, 1 through 11, I've just got a, a few questions. Uh, and that would be this. Uh, how long had they waited for this, for the sake of a better term, star? How long had they waited? Well, if, if they're connected to Daniel, and again, we're not sure, it could be up to 500 years, which means that one generation waited, hopefully, and passed on the expectation to another, and they waited, hopefully, and passed on to another, and to another, and to another. Point being, uh, this was something that had been passed on by way of a high-value tradition for, for generations, really. Well, how did you think they feel when they saw the star? Well, look at verse 10. It, it is chock full of superlatives. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, fill in the blanks, they were absolutely stoked, completely fired up. They were so excited to make this trip. Well, how long was the trip? I think I mentioned earlier, if you're riding a camel, which, I mean, there's no, like, Southwest did not fly at that point from Mesopotamia into Judea. So if you're riding a camel, which they probably were, it would have been a 30-day trip. What are you talking about on the way? I mean, you heard mom talking about this, expectation. You heard grandpa talking about this, great-grandpa talking about this. They taught you and you rolled your eyes. What are they talking about? Some star in the, you know, that we're going to see. What, what does that even mean? And all of a sudden you see it. And you're like, huh? let's go. And they, they roll in. I mean, it must have just been an incredible, incredible thing. And then when they entered uh, the house and they saw the child, 
What did they think at that point? Because remember in verse 2, again, they knew exactly who they were coming for. They wanted to see him who was born king of the Jews. It just reminds me of one of the Christmas carols that we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley like a thousand years ago. Not quite a thousand, but a long time ago. It says this, Christ the highest heaven adorned, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Here come these wise men from uh, the east and they come bearing gifts and they come and, and most likely filling their hearts was this hope that this was no ordinary child. This is, this is the very savior of the world. This is the, the king of the Jews. This is the one we've been looking for and their hearts are just so full. In fact, they call him, uh, or he's referred to at least as Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Uh, when you consider the, the nature of the incarnation, it's one of the most condescending things in the best of ways that could ever have been accomplished, where God in his holiness condescended to humanity, born in a manger. Philippians 2 put it this way, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Taking upon himself the form of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross that God by his grace didn't leave us stranded, that the connection to the gospel is unavoidable because here's a holy God and a fallen humanity and nothing we can do can bridge the gap and mend relationship. We cannot be reconciled to be bought back or, or conciliated again to God other than a divine offering and God by his grace incarnated in the lowliest of places, in the most scandalous of scenarios, in the most backwoods other side of the track, tiny little nowhere place in the history of man called Bethlehem that's known for nothing, nothing. And he's born there. And then the life that he lives to provide for us salvation that we could never earn on our own, it's hopeful expectation. It's the recognition that God by his grace did something impossible, did something outside of our human understanding in incarnating for us. I'm gonna close just by quoting the lyrics of a final sort of Christmas song slash hymn also written by Charles Wesley. It's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And it says this. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. I don't know what your um, Christmas season is typically like, but... I hope that this year, as we head into this next week and celebrate the birth of Christ, that there can be indeed hopeful expectation. What we find in the scripture are these characters that see something incredible, moved by God to experience Emmanuel, God with us. And it's easy for us to go through the motions and just kind of miss because of all of the other trappings that surround the holiday season to miss God with us, Emmanuel, the greatest gift that we could ever be given. 
And as we enter into this season, I pray that our hearts would sort of leap with that come thou long expected Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to learn from your Bible, to hear the story of incarnation, to interact with the beauty of Emmanuel, God with us. And we're mindful as we deal with this sense of expectation of this Christ who came in such a strange way and yet provided for us such an amazing gift by grace alone, by faith alone, in him and him alone. God, we are grateful. And we don't have much to offer. But God, what we have, we offer freely because you are so faithful and so good to us. So as we sing and respond, as we interact with this idea of hopeful expectation of Emmanuel, God with us, Christ our King, who came to seek and save the lost, God, thank you for your grace this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.